0: let me presume to introduce wales this surprisingly diverse rocky sea-bound peninsula in northwestern europe green mountains sweep down to craggy coastlines cow-dotted fields and ancient moss-covered atlantic oakwoods cling to the slopes limestone sandstone and dark-bellied granite vie to outcrop Fast-flowing streams tumble and trickle through the moss and the peat. Rivers race down the inclines, gathering tributaries and challenging salmon and suin to keep jumping. Deep coastal rears open into rich, shallow waters. Regular rains water the ground, even as the tropical waters of the Gulf Stream keep the climate mild and temperate. That was a quote from the book Welsh Food Stories by my guest today, Carwin Graves. Imagine the food of this land, Wales. Women using the produce that landscape created. Oats, leeks, cheese, cockles, lamb and butter to create meal after meal of nourishing, sustainable food. This is the Food of Wales, and in today's episode I'm talking to its chronicler. We talk about food born from landscape, sustainability, women as the holders of ancestral heritage fermentation, bread, and much, much more. Welcome to the Ancestral Kitchen podcast with Alison, a European town dweller in central Italy, and Andrea, living on a newly created family farm in northwest Washington State, USA. Pull up a chair at the table and join us as we talk about eating, cooking and living with ancient ancestral food wisdom in a modern world kitchen. Welcome back. Today, I am very grateful and excited to be sitting with, or at least virtually sitting with, Carwin Graves, the author of Welsh Food Stories. Hi, Carwin and thank you for coming on to the Ancestral Kitchen podcast.
1: Hello. Yeah, good afternoon. Really good to be here.
0: So the first question we ask all our guests is, what is the last thing you ate? And I know because you're close to me geographically that you've just had lunch. So what was that?
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, We had um, what we usually have for lunch, which is um, salad from the garden. We're lucky here in uh, West Wales that we can grow salad year round. Um, Mm -hmm. Salad from the garden with... um, some um, I'm glad to say today um homemade sourdough um breads, which Yum. um uh just simple and delicious.
0: Are you the baker? Uh,
1: yes, I am. Yeah.
0: Okay, and how do you like making sourdough?
1: Um, it's become this is the honest answer. It was um you know a learning curve um a few years ago, mm. um mm. and it was really exciting, and now it's just a really um humdrum part of the routine that I enjoy in the sense that you enjoy like taking in a blue sky or something it's like and and that's a good thing um for me which is is it just it works and I take pleasure in that but I don't give it almost any thought
0: (laughs) yeah I think that's a good thing because you know bread making is a staple and always was and so feeling like it's part of the landscape And yet pleasurable, like looking at a blue sky. That those are both positive things in my book.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and I didn't expect to, you know, when I was, you know, reading up everything and and trying out different recipes and oh, you know, find you know learning. I never expected Mm. to get to this sort of place. Um, uh, But I, I take a certain pleasure in the fact that I realised a few months ago. Oh yeah, this my this is my relationship with it now, and that's fine. That's good.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. So I've just finished reading your book, Welsh Food Stories. I have to say most of it um, I read out loud. My husband and I have an eight-year-old boy. We read together in the evenings Mm -hmm. and we share books. So I read some eight-year-old books and he gets to listen to some adult books. (laughs) Um, And all three of us totally enjoyed it. Yeah, that's really nice. Yeah. So I wanted to say congratulations because it is such, not only such an informative book, but it's so beautiful and it's... It's full of traditional foodways of Wales, which is often an unnoticed country. So, thank you for writing it.
1: No, it was a privilege to be able to write. And I said, um, I said the wrong thing at, the, at the one of the book launches, and I said, "I wish I'd never had to write this book." But what I meant by that, um, it would have been so good if somebody else had done it years ago mm. um, when some of the traditions that I write about which are still alive um but are weaker now than they were you know 20 or 30 yeah. years ago um but yeah it's a privilege to have been able to to meet people keeping traditions alive and others bringing things back too so um yeah it's, it has been a privilege to to be part of that journey
0: I can I felt that reading the book you know that You know, you're describing traditions that would have been alive like 50 years ago, probably still, and the sense of what it would have been like to have been in all of those kitchens 50 years ago, witnessing that, and and that just would have been wonderful. Yeah, so I, I get that sense. So I'm from the UK, so I know Wales quite well, but a large portion of our listeners are in the USA and around the world, and some of them won't know anything about Wales at all. So tell us where and what Wales is.
1: Where Wales is is quite easy. So we are um, uh, a peninsula on the island of Great Britain um, and the easiest way to locate Wales is um, to think halfway between England and Ireland. We're in the middle between England and Ireland. England one way, Ireland the other. Um, And that's actually, I, I like that description halfway between England and Ireland because there's a lot about Wales that is also in some ways halfway between England and Ireland half of what is true of England is true of Wales and half of what is true of Ireland is true of Wales um, uh, and we've got a few other bits um kind of thrown in as well so what wales is well that's um you could you know you could i think meaningfully talk about wales as a an ancient celtic culture um some people are skeptical about those terms but but there's something in that um that is that is true um it is part of the uk um uh, there is an independence movement here. Um, it has um, also um, a very... So my first language is not English. You may or may not be able to hear that. Um, but my mm. first language is Welsh. Um, it's my kid's first language as well. Um, we live in um, in a part of Wales where, where Welsh is still the main community language, at least in the countryside. Um, and that is a language that has been spoken here um, since well before records began. Um, so it, 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 the language comes with a... Um, Oh, with with a culture that I could spend the next three hours boring you about, but I won't. Um, but uh, no, yeah, that, that gives you a sense at least, and listeners as <laughs> you, well. You obviously.
0: wouldn't bore me, but we don't have three hours, unfortunately. So your kids speak Welsh at home with with yourself and your wife, yeah? Yeah.
1: So I, I realised about two months ago that my son, who's three, um, uh, that I could now start telling people that that yeah, they can talk to him in English, as in he he he's. His English okay. is about nine months behind his Welsh, and that's quite common, um, you know, for Welsh speakers. We all pick up English, even if you know, even if home and friends and social life and school are all in Welsh. Um, there's just so much English about in in other ways and media and so on that everybody does. Unless you have learning difficulties or people with dementia, um, uh, they often then will you know not speak English or. But most Welsh speakers are fluent in English.
0: Okay. Okay. That makes sense. I feel um, I'm really interested when you talk personally, because my granddad was Welsh, but moved out of Wales when he was a boy with his his mum and dad to go to just over the border in Chester into England for work and then never went back. Um, but the, the language itself to me is completely alien to English. You know, it, it's so different that I struggle even with, you know, the... Um, the terms of the food in your book. And you know, each chapter of your book is based on a food and, and trying to pronounce them. Um, I'm going to leave that a bit to you, I think. If you
1: want a good Englishman's take on the Welsh language, then I'd highly recommend something that Tolkien wrote, that people can, J.R.R. Tolkien, that people can get hold of, which is mm. an essay on English and Welsh, um, ah. where he calls um, Welsh the, um, I think he uses the term the elder sister of these islands. Um, and he writes okay. as a proud Englishman, um, but he writes very appreciatively and understandingly about the two languages and their relationship. Um, and it's a really interesting essay if people are interested.
0: Wow. Thanks for that. Thanks. I wanted to talk about the landscape as well. You describe the landscape in the book beautifully. I mean, literally, some of the descriptions of the landscape made me well up, brought tears to my eyes. Can you try to explain to our listeners about the Welsh landscape?
1: Yeah, um, Gosh, um, there's so much has been said about global landscape. I mean, we're not talking about a massive area. Out of curiosity, I recently actually looked up the size of the state of Vermont in the USA, which is one of the mm-hmm. smallest of the states, to compare it with Wales. And it's actually bigger than Wales. Um, wow. But without slating in any way Vermont and all that it has um, you know, <laughs> in its favour, um, I think it's probably fair to say that we have a lot more diversity or variety in in our small area here than um the most comparable sized areas of the world um, and that's because of oh, so many things to do with geology and climate and so on but we we have high mountains that are actually only a thousand meters tall but when you stand i used to live in the alps and actually in the alps because the valley bottoms are already at like a thousand meters above sea level and then the peaks may be two thousand meters I see it's it's comparable um, not everywhere but in in lots of places so because of the wind and you know everything you've got so you've got mountains that feel at least in winter um as though they're alpine and then you've got um areas on the coast that actually are among the sunniest parts of northern Europe um which Mm. people you know Wales is famous for its rainfall and, and the mountains really are very rainy but the coast um yeah, you've got very sunny areas with very mild climates, um, you know, frost-free year-round, some of the very mildest parts. Um, so, you know, that already gives you a sense of... Um, and then you've got, you know, obviously wide-open moorlands, you've got, you know, wooded valleys, which are actually, um, you know, the native kind of eco... Um, uh, what's the term? Eco-tone, eco-space um, is mm-hmm. um, rainforest. It's it's native temperate rainforest. Um so not a tropical rainforest, of course, but um we do have seasons. But the differences in some of these places between winter and summer are not massive, and that gives everything a, a texture, um, I suppose. Um mm. uh and um yeah, so so we've got uh, and the underlying geology as well, you know, you've got everything from um, you know, um kind of white limestone cliffs to dark ancient volcanic stone, you know red sandstone you know everything again in this small area and species it's um interesting i'm writing another book now actually on the landscape um and and the history of the welsh landscape and um uh and when it comes to native um uh, plant species um wales is is about a third the size of the island of ireland but we have um several hundred more native Species Gosh. and almost as many as England, and England is again several times bigger. Yeah, um, and it's because we we cram a lot of different sorts of you know geologies and landscapes and and climates into this small area, so we've got a bit of everything. Um, as far
0: that, as that's what comes across, that's what comes across in the book the the variety, you know, completely different geographies and and therefore completely different foods. Really, we talk a lot on the podcast about really. To be sustainable and to, to eat in a way that supports the world, it's the land around us that should determine our food choices. And it feels to me like the foods that you write about in your book have absolutely been determined by the landscape in Wales. And that's created this kind of unique food history. Can you speak a little bit to that, explain to our listeners how the geography and the climate and that variety has built the cuisine of Wales?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's geography and climate and, and then, of course, the third ingredient is people and what, and what people mm. do with that and that, that knowledge of place. Um, yeah, I mean, some examples there. Um, so I, I wrote a book previously, um, Apples of Wales, um which um tells the story of apples and um orcharding and cider making and all this kind of thing in wales and nobody had ever um written about that one person had done a a a booklet about cider making in wales and that was it um and you actually got in print um people making statements like wales has never grown much uh, fruit as the soil and climate are not suitable Mm. and that's wrong you know as a statement Mm. um and, but here's where this all comes in, because um, actually the truth of the matter is that, um, if you, that we have a mountains down the middle of the country. And on the western half of the country, in the western half, where summers are, um, are cooler and wetter and winters are milder and wetter, mm. um, uh, apples were grown um, in sort of farm orchards and back, you know, back gardens in towns and this kind of thing. Um, but they were never made into cider. So apples were part of, you know, something that you ate and particularly, you know, cooked to eat. Um, but but they were never made into cider. Whereas east of the watershed, um, where summers are just that bit warmer and drier, um, and it just allows, a, you know, a, a, a good crop, really, um, of um, apples, um, cider was so important, as in the conditions were just, you know, that much different that... Um, mm. Uh, cider became so important in the rural economy that from um, uh, about the 17th century onwards we don't know exactly but around then hundreds of years ago um, uh, cider became the mainstay in kind of um, agricultural labour's wages that people were paid in cider Um, wow uh, and and then around that of course grows a whole host of traditions Uh, we have a thing called love spoons um, in wales which is something you give to you know your lover, and, um, and and people carved that out of um, apple wood um, uh, because of the kind of symbolism of, of the apple tree and the sweet, um, you know, the sweet connotations and all this kind of thing. At nursery rhymes and just a whole range of different things. So, but none of that kind of apple, well, none of that cider culture, to be specific, none of that cider culture attained um, west of the watershed. So that's a that's a watershed mm-hmm. climate thing. Another one would be grains. Um, So um, uh, people might know that, you know, traditionally, um, you know, uh, there are a wide range of grains grown across Europe. So you're talking about rye and wheat and oats and barley and so on. Um, But um, uh, generally, as the last few hundred years have moved on, um, uh, the variety in any given area has um, decreased. So you had wide swathes of, Eastern Europe basically depending on rye um, and not much else. You had, um, you know, places like northern France growing wheat um, and, and the other things falling to the wayside, the other grains. Um, same thing happened in England. So in England, um, some of the traditional varieties, the local land races of wheat um, were really out of cultivation by the 1850s. Um, now some of the Welsh traditional varieties of wheat were still being cultivated. And we have, you know, reliable um, reports um, of this as late as the 1950s and 60s. Um, but they were grown in some areas, whereas other areas only a few miles away, where, you know, you might be 100 metres higher up, which wouldn't matter much mm. if you are in Italy, but in Wales it makes a massive difference to the climate and the soil and so on. Um, Uh, they might not have ever grown wheat and only ever grown barley and rye. So this diversity meant, actually, that um, over small, you know, quite small distances, a big diversity of grains that actually, in this case, represents most of Europe. because we had oats, barley, wheat and rye, um, Mm -hmm. not quite within living memory. Rye died out um, first in Wales. We had them all in different areas um, quite late on. Um, So, yeah, that that shows it as well. You know, I could go down the list of foods. um, You know, you could talk about the sea and seafood. um, and and, You know, a big range of those as well. um, And which ones, you know, we we could talk about all of them. And and I think this is the thing, is we are talking here about a peasant cuisine. And that both explains why you have this diversity, because you didn't have, even though Wales was a key part of the British Empire, um, you didn't have really... um, uh many people in Wales um taking much part, I don't want to over exaggerate this, but much part in, in the global food economy until the 20th century. Um mm-hmm. and that that led to the continuation of this peasant cuisine, as I say, to well within living memory. You know, there's a lot of people that I meet um in the countryside in their 60s and up, so really not that old, and you know, we're talking in 2023. Um, uh, And that's what they still grew up with. You know, people, you know, some of them, they had, you know, maybe flour brought in and tea and sugar and pretty much everything Mm. else was locally sourced.
0: Yeah. Wow. So why do you think that Welsh food really is relatively unknown compared to other European nations? I think, for example, of oats, you know, Welsh widespread use of oats, but everyone associates oats with Scotland. I mean, why why isn't Welsh food more well known?
1: A uh, couple of things. One is um, Wales, generally, and its culture and everything to do with that is, is less well known than yeah. Even take Ireland and Scotland, which um, geographically they're bigger, population wise, pretty comparable. Um, We're three million; Ireland's about four and a bit million, and so on. Okay. So, um, and they're much better known. Well, why? Well, they, um, you know, there was mass emigration from those countries, mass, but in Wales, um, we only had a little um, emigration. Uh. We actually had a lot more immigration because of the industry here, because of coal mining and steel making and these things that, that really built the country, slate quarrying. Mm. Um, you had immigration. So we have a, a heritage here of um, of you know, coffee shops run by Italians that go back to the 1890s okay. um, in working-class communities across the world. So that is part of the story. Um, but another part of the story um, uh, is like I mentioned, this peasant cuisine, if you think about a context where you've got um, a whole load of people living in the countryside until the latter part of the 20th century, um, you know, very much living in their l- very localised area um, and, and still to a certain extent um, varying from person to person, eating a, a, a quite a localised, um, you know, what you could call peasant diet. Uh, and then you put that in the same country as you've got very, very early industrialization. What you have is... Um, uh, A context where if you want to make money, it's quite easy to make it. Either if you've got capital and you want to invest to make more money, or if you're a worker and you want to just, you know, actually earn decent wages, you can do it in industry. And there's no shortage of work in in that sense. Um, uh, But um, uh, And that means that there's not much of an incentive to try and monetize um, food. Um, As in cuisine, in in, in lots of rural France, rural Italy, there's not much else that you can do other than you know major on your foods. Um, Mm. But you don't have that incentive in Wales. Now, that's there's there's more to it than that, and nobody's actually done any proper kind of academic research into this. But from my reading over the last five plus years into this, um, I think that's a major part of the story. And what I will just add to that is. It's not because the quality of the food isn't there. There is a a stereotype about um, British food, sometimes about English Mm. food in particular, but sometimes about British Mm. food in general, um, that it's not good, that it's boring, that it's bland, um, and so on. But that is um, quite a recent stereotype. And if you go back uh, Mm. uh, for the Victorian era and any time before then, that's not what you find, actually. Um, And um, and actually, there's... um, you know there's a lot of contemporary records you, you don't get any um feeling from um you know contemporary descriptions newspaper reports travellers to wales from the continent and so on that that um that there's anything lacking in the food or that the that the people are undernourished or malnourished you do get those reports in scotland and of course in ireland you have the potato famine yeah there really isn't any evidence for that in wales so it's not because um of of anything to do with the quality of the food is probably more to do with the fact that, that there's not much incentive to um, to do anything with it other than, you know, eat it.
0: <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I mean, the quotes that you put in the book from travellers who were travelling like, you know, 100, 200, 300 years ago in Wales are just wonderful. You know, they the types of foods they ate and what they ate, there certainly was was nothing lacking in, in the foods or the hospitality for sure. So I'd agree with you there. Are you looking for a powerful source of nutrients to enhance your overall health and well-being? Look no further than beef organ capsules from One Earth Health, where the cattle graze on lush New Zealand pastures. The beef organs are sourced from 100% pasture-raised cattle, ensuring that you receive the highest quality and most nutrient-dense organ meat available. Beef organs are some of the most nutrient-dense foods you can find, with high levels of vitamins A, K and the B complex. Customers report more energy, improved skin health and a strengthened immune system, thanks to the powerful nutrients found in these organs. For a limited time, One Earth Health is offering Ancestral Kitchen podcast listeners a 5% discount on all orders and free shipping. Each bottle has 200 capsules and comes in cheaper than other New Zealand-based organ supplements. Take advantage of this amazing deal and experience the benefits of beef organs for yourself. Order now and enjoy the incredible health benefits of One Earth Health's beef organs made with care and quality in New Zealand. Visit oneearthhealth.com forward slash ancestral kitchen. The link is in the show notes. And let's talk about oats a little bit because... Oats weave their way through every part of the book. And I thought in particular our listeners would love to hear about how they were used as bread. And, you know, when I say bread, I don't necessarily mean the bread that you and I were talking about earlier on. You know, your sourdough that you're making. I'm I'm talking about flatbread. So oat cakes on a baked stone on the stove. Tell us a little bit about oats in Wales. Yeah. Yeah,
1: I mean... If there was a single grain, you know, I mentioned the diversity, but within that, if there was a single grain that was, you know, the cornerstone, the staff of life, as some people would say, um, in Wales um, traditionally, um, then it would be um, oats. Um, and again, you know, I, I don't want to overuse the past tense here. I met a um, uh, an old lady, um, far, you know, she just retires from farming. She's in her 80s. Um, she was telling me just in the summer, last summer, she was telling me about her mm-hmm. brother, Uh, in the hills near where i'm living and she said oh yeah until covid until you know 2019 um he sowed um oats yeah they were something that he'd got from his father and then you know i keep hearing these stories so it's not that these things are completely dead or gone um it's that they're Mm -hmm. kind of they've gone under the radar a bit um so oats um when we had the the fullness of um oats culture um absolutely um oats were, were were grown um everywhere they Particularly, they do do well um, or or better than any other grain um, in quite poor growing conditions um, where it's windy and where it's wet and where it doesn't get that warm in summer. That's why, of course, um, they were very widely grown as well in Scotland. Um, And um, what, you know, one of the main, main things that people made with them was um, what we would call barra kirch. Um, Barra is bread. So that's why you said bread earlier. Barra kirch. Mm. The literal translation would be oat bread. Um, but what this is is it's not like um in the UK in a supermarket you can buy an oat cake and that's like a little biscuit like um again biscuit means something different in America but yeah. that would be small something like the size of the uh the palm of your hand or something. No, what I'm talking about is something that maybe ooh thirty centimeters in diameter <laughs> sort of size rolled out very thin um and then as you say um baked on a bake stone and then people would make um uh I say people I should say women. Um. Uh. And you know they would make um. You know a big batch at once, and then every house um would have um a, a kind of drying rack implement. Of course, it's got its own name, and it was made out of um. I think it was, uh, which type of wood was it? I do know, and I can't remember, so I'm not going to say the wrong thing. But it was made out of a particular type of wood, and there was a reason for that um uh and um and that they were stored and that was you know that was um your supply for the week and then and then that was even further processed um so when they got really stale um so firstly I should say people would then eat on them so you can kind of imagine a sort of open sandwich type thing on this Mm -hmm. 30 centimeter diameter little plate of you know oats cake um and um and the range of things, I mean, that could be quite simple things like, you know, spread butter over it, um uh, uh cheese or but but also um you know uh things, you know, one of my favorites is something called kokossawiya. Now, this is a Welsh dish that has um that has died out um uh, completely, sadly, but it was um made until the early 20th century and um, well, probably mid 20th century and it, it's um, cockles um, that are fried with um, onions and a bit of salt and pepper and eggs mm. um, uh, you know, fry the whole thing together um, and then serve that um, between two slices of this um, oat bread or oats you know big oat cake um, and you know if people can source the ingredients um, and try it at home it, it's delicious mm. because what you have is the um, kind of the 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 um you know the slightly sour um seafoody flavor cutting through from the from the cockles uh, a little bit of sweetness from the onion of course um and um and then the savory dryness of the oat and and of course that what you've fried is is just got that moisture and it just works yeah. um and um and so that's you know that's one example again you know among many um uh, of things that you'd use the oat bread for so uh, and then, of course, as I mentioned, um, they could be processed further. So people would then, yeah. when they got old, you had too many or whatever, they'd then crush them and seep that in um, uh, buttermilk, so traditional buttermilk, bioactive buttermilk, and um, uh, and then make a dish out of that. And, um, yeah, and that's just one. That's just Barakichth, and there's a whole range of other oat dishes um, as well. But it, I think it's fair to say that... Um, uh, you don't get a sense that people looked at a um a chest of oatmeal which is what people had
0: uh, mm. and
1: thought oh can't make anything much for this I guess it's got to be porridge <laughs> um yeah. it, it's not that
0: yeah that's what I mean I've been um researching oats for a couple of years now I've just started off because I love oats and I'm just astounded by what people of Great Britain um, did with oats because it's not just about porridge. Everyone just thinks oats is porridge. But um, the Welsh examples of what was done and what is still done with oats are, are tasty and really inspiring too.
1: Yeah. And oats, you know, let's, you know, let's be, so oats are amazing. They, you know, they fill you, they they have a very, you know, they're, they're naturally gluten-free, to put it simply. Um, they, you um, uh, you know the glycemic index is great you know they're they a fantastic ingredient they they do well in organic cultivation um so you know no pesticides use and everything's so better for the um for insect life and everything um so oats are amazing they're also they don't because they don't have gluten um you know wheat um it's it, it does something to us and you know yeah who know more about the science can say more about that than i can but you know you just put some you know bread into your mouth you know wheat bread and it and it just triggers something on a chemical level inside Mm it because oats don't have that you have to work a little bit harder with them um but um but what you end up with are um in my opinion quite um subtle but satisfying flavors and dishes Mm -hmm. um and particularly i think the other thing that's worth saying here is that um yeah, I've got nothing against modern varieties of, of oats and they've been bred to be productive and, you know, a lot of good work that's happened there. But, um, uh, you know, in Wales, um, uh, again, um, still in cultivation just, um, and more people are trying to bring them back, we had hmm. at least 14 named, widely known native oat varieties, some of which almost certainly go back to the kind of Iron Age, you know, pre-Roman, right. which is just... Astounding, you know, that, that kind of continuity mm. of cultivation. Um and they yeah, they've got all their names, they're all Welsh, Kirti Bach, Kirchhoeid, Kirkuta, um, and they're all different. Um, and so just to give an example from the Kirti Bach, that's the literal black oat, um literally mm-hmm. translated, um, that really is black. Um, and when you make oatmeal out of it, um uh, you know, when you process it, um mill and everything, you get oatmeal. Um uh it's uh, it's very dark. And you know, you try and make an oat cake or oat bread you know in the welsh way out of that or something more porridge like um, or other things um it's got a much nuttier flavor you know a very full flavor for you know for oats um Mm. and so i think that's also part of the story here is it's not one type of oat again you know i could i could wax lyrical about apples and, and the variety of flavors within apples and i think that's something that we moderns um, and people who are used to a, a, a kind of modern western way of eating lose sight of is an apple is not just an apple and an oat is not mm. just an oat mm. and um, and for our ancestors um they were used to a greater variety within this smaller range of um species if you like um but there was more variety within that
0: yeah yeah, I'm really excited about getting my hands on some of those black oats. I've been following um, the Patrick Holden's farm and the fact that they're they're growing black oats and I'm like, all right, I want to get some of those and try those. Um, I want to pick up on something else you said, which was, you know, you, because there's no gluten, you have to work a little bit harder. Mm. And I mean, I I've been playing with oat cakes here and trying to roll them out and make sure they're not breaking and trying to get a nice edge so it's hard. not kind of bobbly. It's hard. Do you yeah. know that um, and in some parts of Wales, yeah. um,
1: sorry to interrupt, but some parts of Wales... No, go. Uh, 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 farm workers, female farm workers, they mm. were hired by virtue of their reputation as to how well they made <laughs> oat bread or oat cake.
0: So I'm trying to channel that energy, yeah. so I'm going to be <laughs> the perfect oat cake maker. Um Let's talk about women a little bit more because you say in the book quite a lot that, you know, the holders of these food tra- food traditions in Wales are women and in most of our listeners are women and it's something quite close to our heart. You know, women are the one who made the cheese, the cockles that you talked about were collected by women, women made the breads, women made the, used the bake stone yeah. and you kind of implied in the book that that's played an important role in the rapid loss of the foods and traditions since industrialization. And when I thought about that, I, I wanted to ask you, do you see other nations where more traditions have survived as simply having a greater predominance of male-held traditions? Mm. Or maybe that traditions in other nations have been masculinised in order to ensure their survival where they weren't and haven't been in Wales? What's your take on that?
1: yeah it, it's definitely a complex picture, but i would say i think i'd say two things first i'd say um yes that um uh that this really you know i don't think you can do justice to this whole um story about um Welsh food without putting women front and center um and at the same time i think I as a as a as a Welsh speaker and as part of this culture, I think I have to acknowledge, uh, and as a man as well, but um I have to acknowledge that I think the way that we have um defined our own culture in Wales, we have um uh we've defined um I think this is quite interesting, we have defined it, um culture as basically things that men did in their free time. Um mm. and um and uh, and that has led to the exclusion of um, within a you know a traditional society kind of setup to the exclusion of activities um, uh, that women took part in. Um, now, a thought that may come to some listeners' mind as well. That's probably because women didn't have any free time. Um, it's certainly true that women worked incredibly hard. Um, there's no question about that. But also, it's clear that um, actually there was um, uh, you know a good deal of free time um in winter um in you know again until early 20th century there was very common um social institutions not on which is a sort of um well basically social get together um and people would you know have fun and do all sorts of things both sexes but there you'd have the men kind of going off to do poetry um and that mm. you know poetry is a very high place in our society and that's very true now it's not dying in any sense whatsoever um uh, but it's been a male thing and that's only now changing. And women would go off and they'd do all sorts of things um around singing but also around knitting and so on. But we haven't, in our Welsh culture, we haven't given knitting and all the all the you know all the beautiful things that rose out of that, quilts and, and all sorts of things, um, any place either. We haven't given them any status. So I think um part of it is is an internal thing about the dynamics of um of Welsh culture and, and how we have to um you know come to terms with that ourselves um the other thing you asked was about about the comparison um mm. there are there are things here that are you know part of a broader kind of maybe european or western um uh you know dynamic and um and i think it is interesting to compare with with other nations and you know i just um, I, I speak French and I've lived in France. And um I think it is really interesting to think about the food tradition of France and this question about women and and because it, France has generally fought really hard to retain and um and you know, and it's given food that place in its culture. Um so how do we understand this? And and I think it is interesting there to look at um how you've got um, chefs rising up um, from quite a you know an early date um, in France. This kind of culture around the chef, and the chef mm. is a is a male. That's a male domain um, uh, in the, in the courts of um, you know first the kings and so on, and also um, then when restaurants get developed in Paris. But then what you get is women, um, particularly of course in the city of Lyon um, uh, in in south central France. You get women um, stepping into this male domain and they get called mère, mother. You know, you've got les mères lyonnaises, people can look it up, mm-hmm. lyonnaise mothers. Um, and, um, and and there's a massive, you know, centuries-long then tradition of, of of these female chefs. Um, and, you know, but, um, feminism is, is not my field per se, but from what I understand of, you know, studies in this, you could understand that as... This remains a kind of male domain and male space in France, um, you know, kind of food. Um, mm-hmm. But we create a, a kind of enclave within that um, for women and, um, and we give it a title and we call them mothers. And so they remain women within a male space. But we really make that very clear by calling them mothers. Um, so that I think is interesting to understand that as a, as a counterpoint um, because I think in Wales as well, you could make a comparison with England, and I think mm. not saying anything controversial to say that English food culture um, you know it's got tradition and heritage and, and fantastic dishes and and all these sorts of things I've been saying about Wales they're also true in in different ways about England different parts of England um, but um, uh, but the the general view and certainly within England itself is very low, and you 've got the same I think you've got the same thing happening there as you've got in Wales and, and you've got, you know, there's no sense in which um, what women do in the kitchen receives any status or any acknowledgement mm. in England. Um, and yeah, I mean history is not science. So we, but, but it is interesting to make these comparisons. So for me, that comparison with other European societies and cultures and their own dynamics kind of confirms um uh, this idea about um, whether a culture acknowledges women and their role with food or not, and and that having a massive effect on the overall attitude to food, let alone, of course, the question of the overall attitude to women, which is a whole other story.
0: Yeah, it, it's it's incredible. You know, we have listeners from all over the world, and and I'm here in Italy, but having you know, I'm English, growing up in England, and I. And I see, you know, the traditions that Italy are famous for, the charcuterie, it's very male-dominated because it's kind of butchery, it's been a, a male field. And the pizza, you know, all the pizza restaurants. I've never seen a woman as a pizza as pizzaiolo, you know, making pizzas. Mm. But then you look at the, that lady who came in like 10 years ago and filmed all the pasta grannies, you know, and there's that yeah. idea of these these women who were the heads of the household looking after managing the household and they're now grannies you know and they can still make you know three thousand pasta shapes in two minutes without even looking you know um and it there's this kind of dynamic of what's been exported from italy is artisanal traditions which are male and yet someone has come in and tried to nurture the kind of the female side and let that be shown as well and all over the world from listeners I hear you know people who've gone from Italy to America and have kind of grandparents who are Italian and now they're kind of finding their roots and people in all over the world who all of their memories are of being with their grandmothers being with their mothers in their kitchens and what they made and how that was part of the local landscape how that was with local food and it it feels you know I, I saw that echoed in your book as I was reading I could see that these these traditions and the connection with the local um geography and the local land that provided the input to the kitchen through the food was very much held by women and it I feel a loss of that kind of culture and that um, valuing of just wonderful health for a family and management and sustainability. It's it's such an important thing, um, and everywhere it seems is you know is losing it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think you know I I, I don't feel that I, I I'm going too far in in positing that. You know, you've basically got um, male decision makers um, who, um, uh, because this is not their domain, um, and they haven't learned how to cook, and they haven't, you know, and they see it as women's domain, and and it's kind of taken for granted, a little bit out of sight, out of mind. Um, it doesn't doesn't feature. It doesn't need protecting or um, promoting or and 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 so by, you know, a thousand small decisions and comments and, you know, blah, 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 it just slips away. Um, mm. Whereas, it, you know, maybe, hypothetically, um, if it, things were different and you maybe had a mixed group of decision-makers or, you know, um, I don't want to, to have a world just ruled by women, so let's say, a, a, you know, a properly <laughs> mixed, you know, you want yeah. both um, and yeah. the voices are equal then yeah. um, it would feature, you know, it might, you know, over the last hundred years in different societies around the world, certainly here, uh, I, I, it doesn't feel crazy to me to imagine that the conversations would have been different mm. and that food would have featured in a different way and that, that would have an effect on, on policy and on culture more widely.
0: Yeah, yeah. <coughs> Thank you for that. Do you love oats? Want to try your hand at a traditional Scottish oat fermentation? Suans is just that. It was made in Scotland for centuries and will give you both a creamy, easy to digest porridge and a tangy, probiotic drink. My video course, Suans: the Scottish Oat Ferment, over at the Fermentation School, will guide you through everything you need to know to create these two ancestral foods in your own kitchen no matter what equipment you have. Head to ancestralkitchen.com forward slash suans ancestralkitchen.com forward slash suans S-O-W-A-N-S or click the link in the show notes to get a 10% discount automatically applied. Um, let's move on to talk a bit about fermentation, another um area that we're we're all passionate about. and I want to talk about buttermilk because um your book, like I said earlier, is divided into chapters, and each one of those is a staple traditional food, and such a big part of Welsh food is dairy. you know you've got a whole chapter dedicated to cheese and a whole chapter dedicated to butter and I did want to talk about buttermilk. Can you give us the name in Welsh for buttermilk first?
1: Yeah. Um, so for me, it's Llaathe Enwin. L'ath enwin. Now, in different parts of the country, there are different dialectical terms. So there may be Welsh speakers that listen to this and say, that's not the right mm. term. Well, well, but that's what we call it in my area, Llaathe enwyn
0: OK, thank you. And buttermilk, as you describe it in the book, is completely different to buttermilk as we might buy it in um, a supermarket nowadays. So can you explain about proper buttermilk?
1: Yeah, well, um, this is um, uh, something that is, you know, it's, it's the side product of, um, of um, butter making uh, and, um, uh, you know, churning um, in that sense, um, made with, of course, um, in all of these traditional contexts, absolutely, in Wales, up until, um, commonly, that is, up until the 60s and 70s, um, on a lot of farms, um, uh, made, you know, at home, for um home use often or, or for selling quite locally um, and the butter milk is 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 the side product um, uh, but it's made with raw milk um, and that mm-hmm. means that it's um you know it, it's bioactive it's full of um uh, bacteria um and um, uh and then yeah used um you know really had it had a really um iconic central place um in in people's ways of eating um, and um, uh, so this is quite a thin product. If you make mm. um, cultured buttermilk, um, uh, you can end up with something a bit thicker than than what we're talking about here. So this is a thin product. It's sour. Um, uh, I heard somebody um, recently, um, when I was doing a talk near here, explain to her daughter. So she was maybe in her 60s and she grew up on this, um, in this mm. part of Wales, um, and she's explaining to her daughter who's probably in her 30s and she's saying oh it's just you know imagine the taste of kefir which you can buy in supermarkets mm. here now it's like it's like kefir it tastes like that mm. um uh and if people are familiar with that then that is quite similar it, it's um yeah it's sour um thin um and um and bioactive crucially um so yeah fermented mm. um and, and then used um so used in baking absolutely you know massively used in baking so one of the most well known kind of foods to come out of Wales, um, is uh, Welsh cakes, which are small little, um, sweet, um, uh, neither a cake nor a biscuit, uh, using those terms in the UK sense. Yeah. <laughs> they're in the middle. They're a little bit like a scone, but not. Um, uh, but they're they're, they're made with flour and um, you put dried fruit in them and sugar mm-hmm. and um, egg, and um, and buttermilk. Um. Yeah. Um. Traditionally, that is. And if you make a Welsh cake, you'll find recipes online really easily. If you find the recipes that have buttermilk, um, and if you can't, don't have buttermilk, then you could put um, uh, kefir in and, and yeah. basically get the same thing. Um, try making them um, without that and then making them with and compare the difference. And it's just enormous. Um, and that, that, that kind of t- it gives baked goods a kind of tangy flavour. Mm. Just um, fantastic. And, um, and yeah, it was liberally used um, in baked goods um, of all sorts, including, I mentioned scones. Um, scones were uh, became um, popular in Wales, a good um, southwest English um, thing. They became popular here. Breads as well, um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, pancakes, um, buttermilk was basically anything baked, people put buttermilk in.
0: And it sounded like from your book that they would drink it all the time too.
1: Yes, yes, so it was used as a drink all the time. There's of course uh, there was a lot of traditional kind of sayings and knowledge around it being health giving, um, yeah. and I, I find that fascinating. And and I I go and I I do talks as I alluded to earlier. Um, uh, I often talk to um, you know uh, uh, groups of older folk, um, and um, and I and they know some of these sayings and they know some of the kind of what they were, grew up with. You know this knowledge about buttermilk that it was good for you and it was good for your stomach and these sorts of things mm. it's encoded in sayings in Welsh and um and they know that and then I say to them yeah but do you know what um do you know what kind of the science around gut health has shown in the mm. last 10 years you know our ancestors were right and mm. and that is a little bit I think fair to say it's a little bit mind-blowing to them because they've yeah. grown up with this idea that um yeah that kind of industrial supermarket food is um is good and is um you know is what we should be eating and that the stuff that people grew up with was backwards and old fashioned um and this is the older generation in wales um and um and so for them to be told that that traditional knowledge about the health giving benefits of like raw milk buttermilk traditional mm. buttermilk um it, it it's really interesting to to see that kind of you know, mind encounter happen.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just think about things. the whole generations whose biome must have been just changed, literally, you know, because of the um, fermented buttermilk that they were drinking every day. And the loss of that now, the last however many 50, 60, 70 years, the biome of people in Wales must be changing because they're not drinking raw buttermilk anymore. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. And... um yeah, so drinking raw buttermilk, and and also you know, another one that was ubiquitous was um, a very simple sort of summer dish of um, you know talking about seasonality here um, mm. uh, with all of these foods, and so in early summer um, new potatoes or early potatoes, you know, the first crop in Wales we can um, we can well in rural uh, sorry in coastal parts milder parts you can plant potatoes mm. um, in early March and they can be ready um, by the very beginning of June, and there's always a race between the milder parts of Wales with Cornwall and the, you know that kind of thing who gets whose early potatoes are ready first kind of thing and anyway so then an early summer dish um uh you know potatoes fresh from the ground they taste absolutely delicious mm. and um and then just um, you know boiled up and then um served with um uh served with buttermilk and um sometimes a bit of parsley or that sort of thing and a bit of salt mm. and it's um really simple and really delicious and it, it uses Again, that the, the products of, you know, of this country. And again, just another thing, if I may, um, mm. you know, now milk in, um, you know, industrial agriculture in Wales, mm. just like anywhere else. I mean, it's not quite as bad here because um, cattle that, you know, that, that um, produce a lot of milk still, you know, a lot of milk and butter is made here. Um, they are out most of the year and they are grazing. You know, they're not kept in massive yeah. feedlots and stuff in Wales. So we're we're lucky in that sense. And that's good. But what they're grazing is generally improved grass mixes. But what they would have been grazing 50 years ago and, you know, all through history until then, was a mixed herbal lea with right. you know, a, a massive mix of native grasses and also they'd have been browsing, um, you know, shrubs of, you know, hawthorn yeah. and, and uh, you know, different things. And, um, and, you know, of course, clovers came in. And so, and that itself... Um, uh, there is some evidence um that the actual balance of omega-6 to omega-3 fatty acids mm. in milk um, uh, can um entirely switch over. Um so it's it's about two-thirds to one-third in right. conventional milk. But if you have milk from um these um you know mixed traditional pastures, low-input pastures without fertilizers and things, um, then um then uh, it's one rather than two thirds to one third. It's one third to two thirds. So it gives it the same omega um, three to six ratio yeah. as seafoods, which is just astounding. I mean, that changes yeah. the nutritional profile of milk. Gosh, and that is of course what people here, um, everybody took entirely for granted.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and we're we just we're not eating the same foods that we were eating fifty years ago. Meat. We're not. We still call yeah. it milk,
1: but but you know chemically and nutritionally, it's not the same product.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I want to talk about one more fermentation, which is an oat fermentation, I'm going to include oats and fermenting together, which is um which is an area I'm very passionate about, and I've been making the Welsh um oat fermentation. I'm going to try and pronounce it and you can correct me. Cymry. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah.
1: Cymry. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um absolutely yeah, fantastic. It's
0: spell L L Y M R U but it's pronounced Humri. And, oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm going to practice that after we finished. finished. Um, I started making um, originally suans, which is a similar mm. oat ferment from Scotland. And then I stumbled across this um, thanks to the book Welsh Fair. And I can't get hold of um, raw milk here. So I used whey, which is raw and I made myself. And I, I really love it. I love putting it in the fridge, seeing it go all like jelly and slicing it up and eating it in various different ways. Um, and, and the recipes that are mentioned in your book and in that other book that I talked about, Welsh Fair, which is by um, a lady called Minwell Tibbet, yeah. they use um, buttermilk in a lot of griddle breads, like you're saying, like in the Welsh cakes, in various other breads. And I wonder, was that ever left to soak and produce a ferment like the oat ferment I've just mentioned, to kind of make a sourdough bread? Or was it always cooked up straight away and not left to ferment?
1: Yeah, so um, summary is, um, yeah, it's... Fantastic, and it, and it does create um, this yeah, thing, like you say, that's a bit like jelly. And there are, yeah. <laughs> mentioned, there are several mm. others as well. There's um, sikan, um, and mm. there's um sikanguin and there's shot, mm. and there's leaf. And these are all variations of fermented dishes using oatmeal, water, and buttermilk, um, typically. Mm. Um, and then other things, you know, as they were served. And, you know, to answer the, the question about um, soaked to sourdough, I think the answer is yes, but um, it's almost devilishly hard to find out. And the reason for this mm. is that from quite early on, um, uh, all of these sort of sour flavours um, and, and dishes, you know, that, that were made in this way, that were fermented, of course, um, mm. uh, just like, you know, actual sourdough starters itself uh, themselves and um, bread made with sourdough starters. Um, mm. Uh, they um, attained um, quite a low status socially. And that mm. means, of course, in a, in a historian's work, typically you're relying on written material yeah. of, of many different sorts. Um, and things that have low status, people don't tend to write about. Mm. Um, so, so we have to, to work out whether it was the case or, or not. Um, we, you know, we, we kind of have to read between the lines and um and from reading between the lines i think the answer is yes um but it's really frustrating that um uh yeah that, that i can't say it with with more confidence than that but let me give an example of, of the sort of mm. reason why i can be quite confident is that you do have and i think this one may actually be in that book that you mentioned um people are in the uk they can get hold of it i don't know if it's available um more broadly but that book um welsh fear by Minwell tibet is fantastic and I would just advise people um not to buy it's going to sound terrible, but not to buy any other <laughs> um Welsh yeah rec- if you're after um kind of the traditional peasant yeah. fear, as it was actually made and eaten um in Wales because what Minuel tibber did and she's a woman by the way Minuel is a female name um same theme uh, she was a pioneer actually in in women 's studies in general um and um she sadly died now um. And she went around in the 60s and 70s, around all sorts of areas, country areas, urban areas. And she talked to the older generation alive at the time then and got their recipes and their sort of um, ways of doing things. And at the time, that was a new thing to do um, and really groundbreaking. And that book is just, you know, it's whatever, 100 pages of and it's not a recipe a page. It's like three or four recipes a page. There's a lot Mm. of stuff in there. Um, So I'd really recommend that if people are interested in in trying some of these things out and finding out more Welsh fare, F-A-R-E. But yeah, in that book, I think she's actually got, if I remember, um, uh, a recipe for krempog Sirgeirch, and that would be a um, sour oat pancake. um, Mm -hmm. And um, in other places as well, um, uh, in some of her other works, um, and, and some other sources as well, you come across references to sour this or sour that in connection with baked goods. Um and um uh and piecing that together with what mm. we do know about what people did do and some very, you know, very throwaway comments about bread making, you know, very, very brief, you know, just a sentence, a throwaway sentence here mm. in a letter or um in a in a recollection there. Um I think it did happen. Um mm. and I think but i think it's equally interesting it's not surprising that it did happen because it makes perfect sense um that people knew that it worked and did it but i think it's equally interesting that they saw it as something that was um you know not shameful but but low status something that if you had to do you would do but if you could get hold of um you know shop yeast or brewer's yeast um not that they're quite the same thing but you know mm. a balm from um you know beer um then yeah. um then and it's better to use them. Uh, and, um, and you get other references, even in medieval poetry, actually, to um, kind of poor people's bread and described as sour, whereas wealthy people's hmm. bread is described as, um, you know, as sweet or light or whatever. That's interesting. None so, of this is surprising, but it, it, is, it is interesting, isn't it? It's part of that broader picture yeah. about our relationship yeah. with um, uh, fermented foods um, in, in, in a Western European context, at least.
0: Yeah, wonderful. Thank you, so we're getting close to time. I have one more question for you, which is going back to the broad picture, which is what what do you want your book to do? I mean I look at countries and and I live in a country that's seen its food traditions revered mm. and then commoditized, and it's made some of the people who live here rich and it's done wonders for tourism but on the ground I don't see it feeding back into the soil or the community or the wisdom and you know I, I can imagine you're bringing these traditions forward in your book and it, showing them to people and I can't imagine you want you know what's happened necessarily to Italy to be true for Wales but what what do you want to happen because of your book?
1: Mm. yeah it's interesting to I'm a bit sad to hear you say that about Italy because mm. in one sense i hear that my instinctive reaction is oh but we're in no danger of having what happens to Italy. you know if only we could have mm. um that's yeah,
0: of... yeah 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 um
1: uh you know what what we do have um in wales is we we have um we do have i think for for a western and, and a, a post industrial country we do still have a very strong connection to the land Um, Mm. that's um that's not just a a niche thing that some people care about it's quite kind of common and widespread um and that's a real strength and we have strong still strong working-class communities um that do still you know uh, some of the foods we've talked about their traditions that have been dying out or more or less have died um but we Mm. could have talked about um you know the other probably four chapters in the book and we'd be talking about traditions that are very much still with us, but they're working class traditions. Um, and so they're not; they still don't have high status. Some of the seafood things, like um, I referred yeah. to cockles. Cockles are you can buy them anywhere um, yeah. where I live, and in the fish and chip shop they serve battered cockles and all this kind of thing. And they're local and they're sustainable and they've been go; they're still hand picked, and that's been true for two thousand years. And it's a fantastic story. But the people that buy them are working class people. They don't have any cachet. Okay. Um. Um and we still have that for a whole load actually of, of yeah, faggots are another one. That's um
0: yeah
1: uh, that means um a kind of um meat um ball made with um onions um and things um and then also made with um uh tripe, you know, with with offal bits um from mm-hmm. pigs. Um and that's you know is very popular and but particularly among working class people. It doesn't have any social status among better off people. So we've got that in Wales, and what I would love to see is for us to um, actually, you know, it's nice for people in other parts of the world to take interest in in our foods and our traditions. But really what I would like to see is that we ourselves actually look at what we do still have, some of these um, food traditions, and acknowledge what they are and acknowledge actually the fact that we've got like common, popular, working class dishes that use offal um, or, or cockles or things like that and just say, and and they're locally sourced on all these things, and just say, it's fantastic, and let's celebrate it, and let's not not fall over ourselves to say that we need to all eat um, Thai food or whatever it is, because, you know, I love Thai food, but if we're not going to, um, you know, um, eat the offal um, that we produce, then who else is going to? There's something here, you know, there's a bigger... I, I hope listeners maybe understand something of this background that I'm talking about, about... You know living within our means on this planet um you know eating sustainably in a way that um actually um is in tune with um with the patch of earth that we have been given, and that's that includes seasonality, it includes certain foods. I'm not saying that um and I've not and I think I said it quite clearly in the book this isn't about saying preaching to my fellow Welsh women and men saying um stop eating bananas and chocolate that's not the point at all mm. it is about saying. Right now we still have got um some local food traditions that are nourishing, that are good, that provide connection to culture and to community and to the land. Um they're tasty, they're popular among a certain part of our um culture and country, yeah. a really important part, but not um, you know, generally not kind of more educated or better off people. And um and, and maybe we should change that. Maybe there's something here that, that we've kind of, you know, turned our noses up a little bit at over the last, you know, maybe 30 years. Um, and and maybe we shouldn't. Maybe actually part of the answer to how we live sustainably um, over the coming decades um, lies with us and in our past. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I'm hoping that the book contributes just a little bit to re-enchanting people uh, with, with the potential um, of our own food. Um, you know, if we could eat... Ninety percent food that was seasonable, um, seasonal here, produced from here, and the other ten percent was the bananas and the chocolate and the coffee and stuff mm. we can't possibly produce here. Then our, you know, then then a whole load of things would be better. Um, yeah. You know, without detailing all of the things that, that that could be better. Well, actually, it might well, you know, rural employment, um, community cohesion, people's health, yeah. carbon emissions. You know, there's a win-win-win-win. Uh, but there's a whole load of work to do because that's not where we are right now um, in Wales. Um, Certainly, it's not where the UK is, and it's not where most Western countries are either. Um, But the reason, of course, that we have cheap food that we can import um, is because it's cheap for us because somebody else is paying. Um, And um, to a great extent, that's citizens of the global south, and it's also the planet.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, just messages so close to my heart that you're... Um, bringing out so eloquently. And I think, you know, when you read the book, that's why I particularly wanted to talk to you because it's so clear through your writing, you know, how passionate you are about that idea of, you know, living within our means and that we we have the wisdom available to us to to still do that. Um, so thank you very much. I, I can't wait to come and visit Wales. I might get back to the UK this year. I'm not sure yet. I don't get back very much. But. I'm sure,
1: you know this already, uh, but I'll give listeners a tip as well. Do do come and visit. You'll be very welcome. Um, but uh, don't come um, between November and February. It Really, <laughs> is very wet then. Um, do come spring. <laughs> spring is the best time of year here, um, and um, oh. and you'll get to actually see the country at its best and the bluebell woods and, and all these different oh. things that are just fantastic.
0: Beautiful, beautiful, and and certainly read your book and welsh food stories because it will not only inform you about wales and give you so many ideas to try in the kitchen but um really get you enthused about um local food and ancestral food it's just really wonderful thank you ever so much for all the work you did and bringing that book to life carwin
1: good oh well thank you thank you
0: if people want to go and find out more about you where should they go
1: uh yeah, um. So the book is available um online. I know it is available in the U.S. through Barnes and Noble and I think Amazon as well. And um, it's available online from a range of places. Um, and then I have a a website. I haven't updated for a while, but I'm going to be updating more regularly again. So that's, that's my name, Carwin Graves. Um, C A R W Y N. carwingraves.com. dot Um, and um, yeah, as I say, there will be. There is already. A, quite a big archive there of articles and things quite in depth in both English and Welsh um, and uh, I will be putting more things um, up there um, over the coming months um, so yeah people are, and I have an email a newsletter it's only like three or four a year um, just to signpost people to stuff I've written or stuff I've done um, So if that's of interest as well it's all about um, Welsh food um, and um, uh, increasingly the landscape as well so I'm going to do more okay connecting food with landscape because um, uh, this other book I'm finishing now is 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 about that. Um, uh, there's a bit of that, as you said, in Welsh food stories. Um, but I'm, mm. yeah, I've done a, a bit more of the last um, year or two since Welsh food stories was written.
0: Wonderful. I look forward to reading it. Thank you ever so much for your time, Carwin Thank you. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to continue the conversation. Come find us on Instagram. Andrea's at Farm and Hearth and Allison's at ancestral underscore kitchen. Until next time, we both wish you much fun, exploration and satisfaction in and out of the kitchen.